This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Art Show. I'm Rosa Allen, filling in for Namilla Benson for the next few weeks. I'm speaking to you from lockdown in Melbourne and every day I go on a walk around the neighbourhood, kind of urban exploring, but through that new added veil of isolation. And I often walk past a mural that's painted on the corner of an old milk bar and it's a replica of that famous Edward Hopper painting Nighthawks. You might know it. There's four people in a bar and we're looking in at them illuminated in this greenish-yellow window of light. A man and a woman, a man on his own and a guy at the counter in a white American-style little cap and coat. It's the iconic image of loneliness in the modern age. And providing the couple are from the same household, I guess, they're all doing a pretty good job of keeping their social distance. But when I walked past recently, I actually felt a longing for what they're doing and what they have for being alone alongside other people being alone. Well, my guest on The Art Show today is the UK writer Olivia Lang. She's written about loneliness and Edward Hopper in a book called The Lonely City, and she's just published a collection of writing about why art is important in a crisis like this. It's called Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. Hi, Olivia. Hi, what a lovely introduction. I love the sound of this mural. It's um, it's not the best replica, but it's it is a sort of sad reminder, I, I suppose, of what we don't have anymore. I was wondering, is there a particular moment this year in the pandemic when you sort of realised that your writing on loneliness would be extremely relevant? <laughs> um, yeah, sort of eerily relevant. I think very, very early on in the lockdown here, and maybe even before our lockdown started and when the Italian one had started, I saw um, an image of Nighthawks, the Hopper painting, um, circulating on the internet and it just had the diner, but there were no people in it. And it was like, okay, we're in a new phase. This is a new kind of isolation that, like you say, it doesn't involve what now seems like a luxury of alone with others, alone in a crowd. It really is just empty streets, empty spaces, and people trapped in their home environments. So that's when I started feeling like, wow, loneliness has has migrated again. It's taken on a new form. What is it, though? I mean, that, that painting by Edward Hopper from 1942 kind of kicks off the story that you tell in The Lonely City about a period that you spent in New York alone, unintentionally alone. What is it about that painting that, that captures still this type of loneliness so well? Honestly, I think it's a lot to do with the glass. It's not just the configuration of the people inside the room. They're separate. They're all, there's a distance between them all. It feels like they're failing to connect. But what that painting does miraculously is it places you on the outside. You're not one of the participants. You, the viewer, are a voyeur, a lonely wanderer through the nocturnal city. And you're gazing in at this lighted up scene, but you are absolutely not a part of it. You're cut off by this sort of bubble of green glass. And it gives you a little tingle, a little thrill, a little reminder of what it feels like to be lonely, to feel like you can't quite break through and make contact with other people. And you you pointed out in the book that there's no door in the bar, which I'd never noticed before. Yeah, everyone is trapped. And I think even if you don't consciously notice that, you kind of pick up on the sense that it's a sort of prison, quite, quite a appealing looking prison right now because it does have people in it. But it's still, it's still a sort of trapped environment. And I think that's so much part of... The emotional landscape of loneliness, this sense of being in solitary confinement, being in isolation, being in a locked space that you cannot enter, that you cannot exit, and you also can't let other people into. So I think he sort of conjures with a physical construction, a physical architecture, something of what the emotional architecture of loneliness feels like. Do you think that looking at artworks about loneliness helps alleviate it, or is it, or are we just sort of recognising it? Gosh, I think they help so much, actually. I think there's something about knowing that somebody else inhabited this space that feels utterly bereft of contact is extraordinarily comforting, liberating. That was the experience that I had in New York. I sort of, I went out dowsing through paintings and artworks and I encountered all these other inhabitants of the lonely city and it made me feel so much less 
alone. And it was very important to me that that book didn't end with, oh, I met somebody and the problem was solved. Oh, I fell in love. It wasn't like that. I was still alone, but I felt comforted because some of the shame of loneliness, the most painful portion of loneliness, the shame, had been lifted from me because I realized how many other people had experienced it. We always think we're the only one, but we're absolutely not. It's a communal state. Yeah, that shame and and that sort of alertness of of rejection is is a a hallmark of loneliness because I didn't ever think of shame as being a, a consequence of loneliness, but of course it is. Yeah, and I think we live in a culture that's very pro people being in relationships and having many friends. And, you know, we live a lot of our lives on social media, social being the operative word. So it's very visible how many friends we have. It's very visible how popular we are, how liked we are, how favorited we are. So there's a lot of anxiety, I think, especially for young people around that anyway. Um, But you're right, loneliness has an extraordinary set of physical consequences it drives up blood pressure, it causes insomnia. In the very long term, it can lead to an earlier death. And those things are very, very frightening. It happens because the lonelier you become, the more alert you become to threat, the more reserved you become, the more you turn inward, and the less capable you are of making connections. So it's this sort of dreadful, self-perpetuating, vicious circle of a condition But at the same time, there are ways to break that cycle and there are ways to, if you like, redeem loneliness, to feel softer around it and to not treat it as such a dreadful threat. That's that's really the approach that I took about it. Well, how did you come to be in New York? <laughs> um, I fell in love and I was going to move to be with the person with whom I had fallen in love and then they dumped me. <laughs> but I went anyway. I'd sort of fallen in love with New York as well. I was in my mid-30s. I was living in Brighton in England and everyone I knew was getting married and I think I felt when I was spending time in New York, the possibility of a different sort of life, more of my friends there were artists and people lived in very different sorts of ways. And I wanted to be in the city. And at the same time, I was desperately, devastatingly lonely, um, sort of wrong-footed in in some sort of way. And at first, the experience was frightening and overwhelming. And then I suppose the writer in me started getting very interested in it. Why does nobody talk about loneliness? Why does nobody write about it? Why is this great taboo? You don't tell your friends you're lonely. You might say you're depressed, but it's very hard to say to another person, I'm lonely. It feels like a confession of the most abysmal failure. That struck me as really fascinating. Why? Why is it so difficult? So I started to sort of investigate it out of my own personal need, but also out of sort of intellectual fascination. Yeah. Is, some, is, that, is that fear and that, that, that stigma, does that come out of a, a fear of contagion? I think that's really interesting. I do think there's a fear of contagion. I think it is a primal terror of humans, the social animal, that we will be alone. It's dangerous for us to be alone on some level. This is especially what the um, evolutionary psychologists like to say. It's, it, we don't like it as a species. And it's so frightening to us, the idea of being lonely. I think that there's some tendency to shun the lonely person. And in the book, I talk about an encounter I had, I don't know, in my early 20s, perhaps, where I was at a train station and an elderly man came over to chat to me, per- perfectly benign. But I could almost feel the sort of force field of his loneliness, his his need to make contact. And it was overwhelming. And it really stayed with me, that experience, because I felt so ashamed myself about not being generous. But something in me felt very strongly like I wanted to get away and escape his loneliness. And I think that's very sad. We are very sort of unwilling to, to take care of the lonely, to be kind to the lonely, but then we've all suddenly, and this is so interesting, been plunged into an experience of loneliness. Everyone is experiencing loneliness in a way that many people never have. And I wonder whether that will make us be a little bit more gentle around it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, and you you, you look at loneliness that's sort of, that's as a result of all sorts of different things. I mean, including mental illness and incredible hardship and the different sort of types of stigma that, that come with that. Loneliness that often that is of no fault, you know, of, of, the, of the person, of the artist in this case. 
I was wondering if I could ask you about one of the artists that you focus on, and that's Andy Warhol. He was sort of driven by the fact that he he felt like an, an outsider. How much of his practice, not to mention his appearance, was a result of that deep sense of loneliness? I think Warhol is such an interesting figure and I, I really wanted to put him in the book because I wanted to talk about the kind of loneliness that can be very social, that you can have many, many people around you, you can be going to parties, but you can still feel a sense of quite deep-rooted loneliness. And I think Warhol sort of epitomises that, that he was somebody who was shy and unwell as a child gay um, at a period where that wasn't um, nearly as accepted as it is now, refused to be in the closet, but was also quite sort of secretive about his sexuality. And he went to New York as a young man and badly wanted to belong, to, to be a successful artist. And he was sort of shunned. He, he, wasn't, um, he wasn't welcomed with open arms at all. He worked in advertising. He made these beautiful, exquisite drawings of shoes. That was one of the things he specialised in. But he certainly wasn't considered an artist for, for the period of his 20s. And he has this sort of breakthrough with pop art. He started making, you know, the familiar works that we now know so well, the, the Campbell soup cans and the dollar bills and the Marilyns, these sort of screen printed, very graphic, iconic images. And around the same time, he sort of converted himself into a kind of replicable, iconic model. He made himself into the Andy Warhol we know today. He dressed himself in a particular way. He created almost like a sort of Andy Warhol doll that he could send out into the world. And I think behind that lurks this real terror of rejection, this real sort of anxiety about being left out and wanting to belong, but also wanting to sort of showcase almost the things that he thought were worst about him so that they couldn't be rejected. They were just so upfront that nobody could discover them and mock him. Mm. He made a joke of himself. And then he made that joke unbelievably successful. <laughs> it's such an interesting sort of weird way of tackling the problem. Yeah. And the way he, um, I mean, when his friends sort of turned the tape recorder on him, you know, and, and tried to get beneath the surface of him, he, it wasn't very, I mean, he, he didn't make much of an effort to hide his shyness or his just like total unwillingness to explain himself. Yeah, and I love to listen to recordings of him talking because especially early on, you can really feel that shyness and sort of stuttering and hesitation around speech. I think later he becomes more polished. But he, so the other thing that really attracted me to him and fascinated me is the way that he used technology to deal with this problem of shyness and uncertainty around himself. He started using devices like the tape recorder, like the Super 8 camera, like the Polaroid that he used to take to parties, as a way of sort of luring people to him, but not having them too close. And when I was writing The Lonely City, it was the moment when people really first started using smartphones. And it felt so similar that here are these charismatic little devices, and we can scan the world for people who might be interested in us. But at the same time, nobody's actually going to come close because that person is occupied with their smartphone. So it has this sort of similarly dual ambivalent ability to draw people in but ward people off. Mm -hmm. Totally fascinating. Now, at the, at the other end of the spectrum, another artist that you've written about and examined is Henry Darger, who truly was an outsider. I mean, like he had zero connection to an art world uh, or even a sort of real community can you sort of remind us who he was? Oh, his story is just, it's heartbreaking, really. Um, he, he's often described as an outsider artist. I think sometimes outsider artist is a coded way of saying working class artist, and that troubles me. Yeah. So that was part of why I was so interested in him is he's always talked about in these very lurid terms as this very sort of crazy person, the crazy outsider. And Actually, the more time I spent looking through his own records of his childhood, the more it seemed like his story is about extremes of poverty and lack of nurture. So as a boy in Chicago, his mother died when he was very young. His father became ill. He was put in an orphanage, which was unbelievably brutal, terrifyingly brutal. He kept trying to run away. 
failed to. And when he finally became an adult, he didn't have any education. He didn't have any training. He worked as a janitor in a Chicago hospital all his life. Didn't really have many close connections. He had one friendship, again, with somebody who died. And he made this compensatory universe of artworks that are just extraordinary. They are disturbed and disturbing, but they're also very, very beautiful. A fantasy world populated by winged creatures, little girls who have penises, the sort of very um, sort of troubled landscape of war, but also immense beauty. And he was using techniques. He's around the same generation as Warhol, same age as Warhol. And he was using very similar techniques, which he'd invented himself, Xeroxing images, collaging them together, enlarging to be able to create scale and perspective, just beautiful. And when I went to, um, there's a replica of the Henry Darger, the single room that he worked in and lived in at Intuit, the um, Outsider Art Museum in Chicago. And it really stayed with me because there were things in that room that were so clearly artifacts of poverty. He'd use syringes so that he could carry on using pencils, even when they went down to the sort of tiniest little nub of a pencil. That's not a crazy person. That's somebody who doesn't have any money and really wants to make work. So it was very humbling to see all of that. It was very striking and it told a very different story about loneliness to Warhol. It It was a story that was about what happens to somebody when they fall through the social net and how much people like to then say it's their fault, they're crazy, it's their problem, when clearly it's not. It's about a social situation that has utterly failed them. I've been thinking a bit since moving back to a big city from a town, really, I've been thinking about sort of what, what does it, what, how about a community that allows for eccentricity and mental illness? And, and I sort of thought, well, it could either, it can either be a big one like New York where there are sort of smaller communities supporting you and, and also public spaces that allow you to, mm-hmm. to sort of to be different or a really small one where everyone looks out for one another. And, of course, that's not always the case. That's kind of like it seems like it has to be a sort of special place to be like that. I mean, we were talking about this before, but how does how much does sort of society really need to encompass the lonely for whatever reason that they're, that they're alone? I think it's an absolute obligation of a civilised society. I feel very passionately about this. I think it's really, really important that we do take on some sense of responsibility for people who have fallen through the net for one reason or another. And, you know, unearthing these stories so often, you could feel that you're tracing back to try and find out what went wrong. And it's to do with abuse in childhood. It's to do with neglect in childhood. These are not any individual's faults. They're something that has happened to them and left them in some way struggling to make the sort of contact that other people find very easy. And I feel that we all need to take on some role in providing a social net for the lonely, whether that's just talking to people. You know, I think people get so um, withdrawn and unwilling to just speak to strangers, just speak to strangers in shops, just have those sort of encounters. And maybe now that we're actually all in lockdown and not able to have what they call, sociologists call weak ties, the little day-to-day interactions, I think maybe communally as a planet, we're starting to remember how important those little moments are. It's not just that we're missing our friends or our families right now. It's the odd little exchanges that you have with people that you don't know particularly well. Actually, they're so precious. They're sort of lifelines for people, I think. Mm. How do, I mean, how do we actually do that? I mean, you know, act, act as the safety net, particularly when we're all behind literal masks. I think it's very hard at the moment. I think it's very hard because, you know, I've been this sort of advocate for contact for a long time, social contact, public space contact. But right now, that isn't the best way of cherishing the vulnerable. The best way of cherishing the vulnerable is certainly keeping our two metres and wearing masks. So we're in a sort of very particular experience at the moment. But I'm Mm. sure it is also something that is creating widespread loneliness for people who are suddenly trapped in the home in a way that they weren't before. So I think 
it's a very difficult problem to solve because you can't have those kind of interactions. And we have lent hard on the internet. I think I certainly have. Everyone I know has. That seems to be the way that we've managed to find public space. And one of the things that I notice about the internet is that it's a very unkind public space. So I think one thing that all of us can do is practice more kindness with strangers Mm. in the new forum that we have of Twitter, of Instagram, of Facebook, that these places don't need to be divisive. We don't need to judge strangers on political opinions that they might have expressed, but that Mm. we can practice a sort of openness and gentleness that are you, I think are we you all of us long for. I left Twitter. I left Twitter. You left it, yeah. <laughs> I can't bear it. <laughs> no, I'm on Instagram. That's the only one that I like. <laughs> yeah, I sort of feel like Instagram is the... Um... The, the, the pleasant place to be now. The, <laughs> the gentler <internet>. version. <laughs> but I did, I mean, I was on Twitter for years and then I wrote a novel, Crudo, sort of, that was very much embedded in what it was like to be on Twitter in 2017 with Trump threatening nuclear war. I'm sure it's far worse now, but it felt to me like a not very productive space. And it also felt like it had an illusion of you're being politically active because you're watching news unfold and you're stating your opinion. And that isn't being politically active. I really don't think it is. There are lots of ways to be involved and to make change, but writing tweets isn't one of them. Again, I feel strongly about that. One artist who you deeply admire, who was very, very active, was David Wonorowicz, who I don't think a lot of listeners would know who he was. And he's also on the cover of your of your new book, Funny Weather, Can you tell me about who he was? He is such an exciting artist, um, was such an exciting artist. He died very young um, of AIDS in New York. And again, like Daga, he was somebody who had experiences of abuse in his childhood in New Jersey, um, a violent father. He ran away when he was young and was a hustler in Times Square and sort of doggedly transformed himself into an artist. He initially wanted to be a writer and did write books as well. But then he started taking photographs and he made these images, which I write about a lot in The Lonely City, of um, they're called Rambo in New York. And there are a series of images of men walking through the streets of New York, black and white, with a paper mask of the poet Arthur Rambo. And they're extraordinarily disquieting, beautiful, eerie, captivating. It'd be interesting to look at them again in the sort of new masked world um, because they sort of gesture towards that as well, the sense of not being able to fully make contact with other people, of of being sort of separated by a mask. Um, And and he was walking through some pretty sort of gritty landscapes, wasn't he? Like, like, transgressive New York. 70s, wild New York. So the meatpacking district with carcasses hanging behind behind the Rambo figure and um, the piers off the west side and the Hudson um, which were areas for cruising and um, homeless people slept in them they, they were very violent um, but also sort of sexual Arcadias in a way that Wonorovich himself spent a lot of time in um, so he sort of is documenting and haunting this, this really um, raw kind of city and the images just spoke to me. They they interested me so much. And then the more I found out about Wonorovich, the more really I loved him. I mean, he, he was just such a sort of passionate, enraged, hungry person, artist. And um, his work is just so full of energy and emotion and intimacy, really. I think he was a lonely person and a person who struggled with closeness, who also craved intimacy and his work is so intimate. One of the things that I did when I was working on the book was spend a lot of time in his archive listening to the tape diaries that he made, which are now, um, you know, you can buy them. And this deep voice speaking very passionately in my ear for months on end was just an extraordinary experience. So he, he looms very large in The Lonely City because I was so, I was so captivated by him. Uh, the difficulties that a bunch of Republican senators have in Albany with supporting an anti-violence bill that includes sexual orientation as a category of crime victims. There's a thin line, a very thin line, as each T-cell disappears from my body, it's replaced by 10 pounds of pressure. 
10 pounds of rage, 10 pounds of pressure, 10 pounds of rage. And I focus that rage into nonviolent resistance, but the focus is starting to slip. The focus is starting to slip. David Bornarovich, who was also, he was diagnosed himself with HIV and as a result became an activist. The AIDS epidemic, Olivia, is perhaps sort of the nearest thing we have in terms of the social effect of coronavirus now. People died alone. Friends and relatives were scared to visit people. What what sort of lessons did, did you draw from his life? Resist stigma at all costs, I guess. Um, it, he's, he's a really inspiring person, I think, because he spoke up so much against injustice um, because he thought about the plight of people who weren't himself as well. He he's, was a passionate AIDS activist, but he was also... Know, talking about racism and talking about sexism and the treatment of women and abortion rights, it, those weren't things that concerned him personally, but they were they were on his radar, and you know he considered them valuable enough to to speak about and to write about. Um, I think he was such a fearless person. It, again, I've it's, I've used the word humbling before, but there's something humbling about that the the level to which he committed his life. And at the same time, he was living, I mean, he said once that he felt like he had a target painted on his back and he, he was living with a death sentence. And I think that, um, you know, appalling as it was, also lit a fire under him, that the sense that he didn't have much time and that he had to make work. This enormous body of work, paintings, films, photographs, books, made in a very short time. He died when he was 36, so he he didn't have a huge amount of time and the work feels like it's coming out at a tremendous sense of pressure and intensity. Tell me about your latest book, Art in Funny Weather. We've been kind of leading up to this theme of art in an emergency or art in a time of crisis. Why did you want to publish your writings around that theme? Really, it came out of Crudo, I think. I, I felt like I'd tried to document this period of, you know, anxiety, paranoia and terror. And after I'd done that, it struck me that an awful lot of the essays I'd written about artists, the artists I'd been interested in and drawn to were coming from similar conditions and their lives had been so rich, the strategies of resistance they'd invented had been so powerful it felt to me like they were offering all kinds of alternatives around repair and around resistance. And I thought, well, it would be nice to gather those things together almost as a sort of toolkit for difficult times to, to be inspiring, to give people ideas about other ways of living, other possibilities, because it feels to me like we're in a very impoverished imaginative landscape right now and a very frightening political landscape. So it seemed like a sort of bag of seeds that you could send out into the world and maybe somebody would read and find one of those artists inspiring and it would offer them something for their life. So that was that was the sort of imperative about about making it, about putting it together. When you say sort of repair, what what do you mean exactly by that? I think I've often been drawn to artists who've had difficult lives, especially difficult childhoods, who um, are stigmatized, who are queer, who come from groups or societies that are not well treated within a society, and yet who have had bodies of work that have had a kind of richness, integrity, grace, excitement about them that is absolutely sort of in resistance to the conditions that they've experienced. And that capacity for art to offer some sort of repair, some sort of alternative, some sort of other space that you can enter feels to me incredibly exciting and invigorating. It feels like something important to be drawn out, which isn't to say that I'm not very interested in the artwork in its own right. I am, but I'm also interested in the role it plays in in people's political and imaginative lives. One of those is Derek Jarman, who's a British filmmaker and visual artist, and you were introduced quite young to, to Jarman. Um, yeah, by probably your about even 14. Sister. <laughs> by my, yeah, my incredibly cool sister Kitty. Um, but this was an era where experimental film was played on, you know, terrestrial TV channels, maybe late at night, but it, it was there. It had been commissioned by Channel 4, which was one of our main channels. And 
screams. So his his sort of experimental, very sexual films were on late at night. And if you were a small and interested <laughs> uh, young teenager or pre-teenager, you could sneak downstairs and watch it. So there was this, I'm sure lots of people are listening, thinking maybe that's not so good. But for me, it was, it was really a lifeline. It was a lifeline to discover that there was sort of another way of being an exuberant, innovative, um, warm, exciting world outside the sort of grim suburbs where I was living and Mm. that one might, as an adult, enter it, one might take part in it. We were talking about community earlier and it felt to me like it was a tendril of community reaching out to me that I thought, I want that, I want to be in that world and could follow, you know, sort of lifelong. It felt like felt like the yellow brick road. It felt like he was the sort of magician in the Emerald City and he said, come this way. And he has been a lodestar of my life, Derek Jarman. He really has. And he was queer and he... He also... He died of AIDS? He died of AIDS, yeah. He died of AIDS. I mean, he had that twin tragedy that he had to, first of all, fight for who he was and who he loved and then he had to battle the, the, the horror of HIV... Absolutely, took took away so many artists of the 80s and 90s. And you really feel that sense of tragedy in his work, especially his writing, like Modern Nature. But at the same time, and this is what I mean about repair, his work is full of joy. I mean, more than probably any artist that I've written about in the book. Mischievous, joyous, um, rebellious, anarchic, just fizzing with energy and playfulness. And that's what I mean about offering an alternative. It isn't just, he was perfectly capable of making elegiac work, like Blue, like War Requiem. But at the same time, he was planting a garden on a shingle beach next to a nuclear power station. He was just saying all the time, keep making the world you want to be in. Keep making it, keep inventing it. And I think that is the most powerful message for right now you can make the world you want to be in. That garden that he created, which is called Prospect Cottage, is fascinating. It's located on the coast of Kent in England. What what can you tell me about it? It's on a shingle beach facing onto the sea, fierce winds, lots of salt, and the nuclear power station Dungeon SB is literally right next to it. You sort of think, it can't be that close. And you get there, and it's really very close. <laughs> um, and... You know, nobody would think of making a garden there. You might think this is a nice place for spending some holidays, but he just did it. He dug holes in the stones. He put in some manure. He started to grow roses. He built a sculpture garden. The the place is, even now where it's a little bit more neglected, it still feels just so surprising, so inventive and unlikely, and almost this sort of visual icon of, what art can be, what what one person's creativity and energy can create in the world. I find it a very sustaining place to, to look at and to think about. You've also, you, I read that you had a sort of period of enforced isolation in the wilderness, not quite a garden, but I take <laughs> it you were, you were drawn to sort of like the environmentalist movement in your youth. <laughs> Yeah, I was very involved in the environmental movement. I used to live on road protests in my 20s, so living in tree houses in the path of um, proposed road projects. Um, yeah, it was a it was a brilliant time. Um, and then, like many activists, I burnt out and I went um, and lived on my own in a field in a, they're called benders, like a little dwelling I'd made out of hazel poles and tarpaulin. And I spent, um, I spent a winter living there really very isolated. Um, oh, it would have been freezing. Yeah, it was, I wore all my clothes all the time. I mean, I slept in everything I owned. <laughs> and I had a wood burner in there and I had a bed and I had a sofa. So it was incredibly cosy, but also a very odd period of my life, you know, a very unpeopled period. And I think in some way I craved that and in some way I'm glad I don't live like that anymore. <laughs> Does gardening and being in nature I mean is that essential now for you in these, this time I think it, I think it is essential and it's been interesting seeing how many people seem to have been rediscovering gardening or discovering gardening for the first time during lockdown and um you know covid is one crisis but the larger crisis that we're all heading into is climate change and 
anything that draws people to have a closer relationship with the land and the environment that they inhabit and to think about how to sustain that, I think is going to be so vital in the decades ahead, the centuries, you could say, Mm. but I think it's really a question of decades now. I think people are really seriously starting to think about climate change. Um, But it's a slow process. You know, the, the environmental activism that I was involved in was in the 90s, and we're now decades on from that. And things haven't progressed as far and as fast as we might have hoped back then. So I I have a huge amount of despair about climate change. But also, I think despair is not a way that people change things. You have to have hopefulness, and you have to have excitement about it as well, what the world could be. And I think there are really interesting places. There's Salmon Creek Farm in America, which is a sort of, it was a commune in the 70s. And it was taken over by an artist recently and has been turned again into it, it, it had become very abandoned and has become again um, a working commune that's thinking about ways of living more lightly, living in harmony with and in a balanced ecological way, but also about the kind of society and community that might be sustaining. So thinking about racial politics as well and thinking about being inclusive and places like that I find really inspiring that there are people who are trying to live better and face up to what is certainly coming at a great lick around the corner. Olivia it's been such a pleasure having you on the show thanks for for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you thank you very much. Now as you eat don't thank you, the one you love. Olivia Lang is a writer and critic and her new book is called Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. And her other 2016 book that we also have been mentioning is The Lonely City. You're listening to The Art Show on Radio National. My name is Rosa Allen. Because nobody wants a lonely heart I like a dog Who's a homeless and can't be like a log, he knows that he's best off keeping out of sight. Don't expect nothing, cause nobody wants a lonely heart. And in the dark, Arthur Russell and Nobody Wants a Lonely Heart. I want to take you up north now, east of Cape York, to Kanji country. It's where the artist Naomi Hobson lives and works from her home studio in the little town of Cohen. Naomi's work is bold, abstract, incredibly alive with colours and shapes. And unsurprisingly, that lush country up there has a lot to do with it. She's also a busy traditional owner who's part of a land council representing the owners of vast areas of that country. And I wanted to know how she juggles this role in her community with her studio practice. She's also an advocate for this new campaign by the Indigenous Art Code, now that people aren't travelling to remote communities and art centres. How are remote living artists selling their work? Hi, Naomi. Welcome to The Art Show. Thank you for having me. Now, tell us about where we're speaking to you from, the township of Colin in, in far north Queensland. It's north of Cooktown. Can you describe the area for me? So um, you've called me and I'm at home uh, in Cape York. I've grown up here, I've lived here all my life and it has a population of, of around um, 300 people. 99% of them are, are Indigenous and um, are, are my mob, all family. Um, it's made up of six different clan groups, um, the Indigenous Indigenous groups. It's a nice, nice little community. Um, it's quite central to Cape York. We have two lovely river systems that run through the community, uh, filled with um, marine life and um, river, riverine forest. And um, it's, yeah, very central to um, a lot of the Indigenous traditional land around here. So it's uh, central for, you know, the Kanju, Lama Lama, Umpala, Ayapatu and Wikmulkan and Ukulu clan groups that all live here. And um, I guess it was the rivers that, that brought the clan groups here. That's where most of, most of you, you'd find most of my mob all, yeah, living on the rivers and... Um, you yourself are a Kanju Umpala 
mother and father. That's correct. So my mum's a Kanji woman, and this is her traditional land. The uh, Kowan is built on her um, traditional Kanji lands. And my father is three hours east of us, and his country is Upalai, and they're on the, on the coast. And we've actually, we've caught you at a very busy time of year because you're involved in a whole lot of land council meetings this week. Yeah, so it's, it's that time of the year. Every three years we have, um, you know, the mob get together and it's that t- election time and you know how it is when it becomes um, election time with the mob. You know, there's a lot of talk about the future and how we would look after it and finding the right representation who would who would speak and uh, represent our, our traditional lands well, make the right decisions, I guess. And I guess, and you know, those sort of things have meetings. There are a lot of meetings on country and, you know, lots of family get, get together. Um, it's, it's, a, it's actually a nice time because, again, it's the rivers that, that everyone attend to, to have these meetings. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a peaceful place to, to have a have a get-together, family gathering, and, and talk about the importance and the future of, of our country. How big is that responsibility? Because you're, you're a young custodian. I mean, you're, you're in your early 40s, is that right? That's, yeah. That's <laughs> do you mind right. telling us? Um, but how do you take that on in your art? Well, I always see it as a guidance when I'm, when I'm painting, um, you know, the conversations. You know, for me, having the mob get together, um, is very rare when, when you have, you know, there's heaps of family groups within um, a clan or a tribe, what you might call it, and um, and these this is the only time that you have all the family groups coming together um, whenever, um, you know, when land's the main focus of attention. Um, it's always been our priority, um, the future for it. So a lot of that, you know, you know it's just it's – helps me, I guess, see better, just the visual of how I see my my country. My paintings connect to my landscape and I can't help but to feel, you know, feel my people, especially my elders. Um, It's a time to remember them, um, my ancestors, the elders, and, you know, I can't help but to feel them in my colours. You know, they are the marks that you see on my canvas. Your paintings are extremely colourful and rich with shapes and you're, you're not working in so-called traditional forms. You're also, you work across ceramics and photography. And I wanted to ask you about a series of photographs you've done that's set in Cohen and it's called Adolescent Wonderland. The photographs portray just a whole, different teenagers and young people, I'm assuming with a population of 300 that you know most mostly everyone. Um, <laughs> There's just such a liveliness in your subjects. Why, why did you want to capture young people like that? They actually approached me. Um, you know, before Adolescent Wonderland, I was doing a series of photographs with the men and, um, and how that came about. I was invited to a men's group um, meeting and they were talking about how they, people don't see their perspective, perception. They have a different perception of, of them. And so, um, and that was a Warrior Without a Weapon and um, so that was about the men's in Cohen. Um, once that went to went to show, the young people, um, and it's it's not hard to 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 see them uh, when you come to Cohen. You can't help but to notice the bright red jackets and the rainbow pants and the funky shoes, and mm-hmm. so they're quite colourful. There's a lot. Know? There's a lot of teenagers in Cohen. It, that's well, not many, but I tell you, we've got the brightest, we've got the colourful ones here in in, <laughs> in Cohen. I mean, you know, they're they're living in two worlds, and um, and you can't help but not to note, um, not to note, you know, to notice them. Um, they're they're you know they're the energy of of this community, of my community, um, of their community, and um, and that's that that's what caught my attention. Um, and, and just seeing them, you know, who they are, embracing their identity, um, their, you know, being proud of who they are. Um, and I guess the adolescent wonderland is making them feel that, feel good about themselves, you know, self-ide- self-identity, their, their culture, um, their, where, they, where they come from, their background. 
um, who they are as young people, as young Indigenous people, as young um, black people from Northern Australia, you know. The Black Lives Matter movement, which is making itself heard right now across states and institutions, um, do you think that that's had any kind of empowering effect on young Aboriginal people in a community like Cohen? No, I think just allowing them to be be themselves, letting youth be youth um, is growing their confidence. Um, you know, they're not they're not urban kids, then they're not traditional Aboriginal kids anymore. Uh, it's not the world they live in, in anymore. Um, you know, they they have this perception, like like with this uh, with Black Lives Matter. It's always been something that they have to deal with, and I feel that um, I feel that that the only way that they can deal with this is to be proud of who they are and keep growing as individuals, embracing their heritage, their culture, where they come from, who they are, their differences, their beliefs. Um, It's the only way that they can get through in life. And and I think the public needs to stop, um, you know, putting them in these, how they see them and let them shine to the rest of the world how they want to want the world to see them. Um, and, you know, there's not a day that goes by where they're not dealing with racism. They, they deal with racism all the time. Mm. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter have made it, um, you know, it's what woken the world up to go, you know, to take recognition and look, look what's happening around you. Um, but these kids, I think... I believe that if you just nurture who they are, as, and that's at the bottom line of it all, is just that you have to embrace young people for who they are. If they're, you know, whether they're black, brown, white, green, yellow, you know, it's, it's about them letting them come through at their own pace and where, let them take you on their journey, um, how they want you to see them. We were talking earlier in the show about loneliness and the pandemic. Do you feel pretty removed from it all up there? I've got two mixed emotions on this. But like, I do in the arts world. It's nice to be around other artists and um, other associates in the arts. Um, there's that I miss um, with, with my with you know. I had a couple of shows that was cancelled at the early in the year, um, and then. Um, you know, just not being there with uh, the few shows coming up towards the end of the year, um, that that I'm a little bit disheartened. Like I feel a bit sad, and I and the isolation from my art peers, I feel that. And I'm fortunate that there is um, technology in my social media page, which is which I try to keep in touch with the rest of my art peers and um, colleagues and and the art world. Um, but it's not as um, you don't have that. It, it doesn't have that same effect when you're there, when I'm in Melbourne or when I'm in Sydney or Brisbane, and and I can talk to them, and you have that one on one, or uh, you you know you're at a conference or and mm. yeah, it's just it's not the same. Yeah. And, and I feel that's when I think about that more, I, it starts to take me down a a lonely road. But then. You know, I end up on my country, and and I'm I'm actually feeling more of my country. You know, I, I feel I I feel that during this time of the pandemic, it has it has taken me more. You know, the the journey has taken me more to be on my country, and you know, I'm not only seeing. I feel I I I can feel my country much more now. The pandemic has obviously stopped a lot of the art market in its tracks and the economy as a whole. But but with Indigenous artists, it's a little more dicey because remote living artists often rely on the sales of their work as the only income available to them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Can you tell me about the Indigenous Art Code? Yeah, so um, I guess my understanding of the Indigenous Art Code is a campaign to promote ethical purchasing and understanding of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders art. Um, as a way to support artists and communities. Um, you know, for me, I, be- oh, I believe it offers a broader understanding for the artists and, and buyers um, what is a fair trade um, and an ethical trade. You know, as indig- um, 
as in an Indigenous artist, like I solely depend on my artwork. Um, so the Indigenous Art Code is supporting the creation of a real career pathway, you know. It's, it's a real economy. I don't know if the rest of the world knows this. Like for artists, um, you know, we're making a contribution to society. Um, we're, um, it's, it's our livelihood. It's, it's, it's a real um, career pathway. Um, and, you know, because it's a real industry and it's creating a real market, then I guess, you, you know, we, as, there is a, there is a, there is a market, a real market, so you need to establish rules and um, co codes. And I guess the Indigenous Art Code provides that. Um, it creates it creates a standard, I guess. Um, and there already and, is a power imbalance in some sections yeah. of that marketplace. Yeah, it's creating a real market. And so, you know, for an artist, everything needs to be out and clear. It needs to be very clear for us. Um because we're solely dependent on it. I mean, I am. It's it's my livelihood. Um, you want you want security around it, and that's why I'm involved with the Indigenous Art Code. Is is that is protecting um, the future for my art. Naomi, thanks so much for speaking with me on the art show and for transporting us uh, to the Archer River and uh, up north into your studio. Now, thank you also for, um, for having a yarn today, for, for speaking to me. It's been great. Naomi Hobson, her work is held by the National Gallery of Australia and that series, Adolescent Wonderland, will be on show for the Tanandi Festival of Contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art, which is happening in Adelaide next month. And I can't wait. <laughs> Wow, that's all for the art show this week. If you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast of the show, you can wherever you get your podcasts from or from the ABC Listen app. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at artsonrn at abc.net.au. Thank you to producer Anna Taylor, sound engineer Angie Grant. I'm Rosa Allen, filling in for Namilla Benson. And to take us out, here's some new music by Fireboy DML. It's a track called Spell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.